Okay, we're young, rich, and full of sugar. What do we do? Let's go crazy Broadway style! Springfield, Springfield, it's a hell of a town. The schoolyard's up and the shopping mall's down. The stray dogs go to the animal pound. Springfield, 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 Springfield. New York, New York. New York is that way, man. Thanks, kid. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. Each week, we talk about a movie parodied on The Simpsons. Maybe it was The Simpsons that introduced us to the film, or maybe when we finally saw it, we realized, hey, that's where that Simpsons joke came from. Regardless, each week, we pick one that at least one of us hasn't seen or hasn't seen in a while, watch it, and come together to discuss. I'm your host, Adam Scholes, and joining me, as always, is the Stanley Donan to my Gene Kelly, my co-host, Nate Storing. How are you doing today, Stanley? Uh, like a sailor on shore leave. <laughs> Good one. Um, eh. <laughs> this week we watched the 1949 musical On the Town, which you might remember from its musical parody in the season five episode Boy Scouts in the Hood. Now, it's a new season, so we have a bit of a new approach here. And uh, Nate, before we dig into the film, I actually want to talk a little bit about the musical parody first, which, of course, we're talking about Springfield, Springfield. So... Uh, what Nate, like, what are your thoughts on this musical number? Yeah, it's one of my favorite sort of musical numbers in The Simpsons. It's super memorable, and I also had, like, no idea that it was a parody of anything the first time I saw <laughs> it, of course. Um, but it's at this interesting inflection point, I feel like, in The Simpsons. I've been kind of digging into the history of how they've dealt with musical numbers and all of that. And it's like right around the time where they're starting to be more open to just having a musical number without any kind of setup in, right. in the show. And so this one has a very, very light setup, which is Millhouse just saying, let's go crazy Broadway style. And then there's a musical number. Right. Um, but, you know, before that, it tends to be more like, you know, Homer and Marge singing to each other in a flashback in the car. Right. But it's mm. like this private moment where they're it's very much like in character. And it's not following the rules of a musical. This, on the other hand, is kind of right on the fence where it's like starting to push the idea that, that, you know, music can be used to move the plot forward. Right. right? In a way that, you know, they're just starting to fool around with. Right. Because at the end of the sequence, like the whole gag is that Bart wakes up from this sugar rush hangover to discover that he has joined the junior campers, uh, which gives us one of my favorite lines in the episode when he says, I've made my bed and now I've got a weasel out of it. Which is just, again, great line reading from Nancy Cartwright. Um, But yeah, it's one of those great moments in the show because like you said, it is serving the plot, but it also gives the writers and the animators an opportunity to sort of just do a Broadway style musical number. You know, one of the things that I loved uh, in it was, was the moment where for whatever reason, I guess it was playing in Springfield at the time. Bart and Milhouse go and see a production of Cats. And <laughs> right. it's it's a surprisingly good animated rendition of the Broadway production of Cats. Like, they kind of nail the aesthetic and everything. And one of the other sort of fun facts about this, and we'll, we'll sort of dig into this when we talk about the film, was that the lyrics here, you know, they use the original line from the Broadway musical version of On the Town, where they say, it's a hell of a town, where in the film version because of the censors and everything, they had to go back and change that line to be wonderful town because you, you know, God forbid you say hell of a in 1949 on screen. So it is one of their like more 
straight up parodies, both in terms of like style and the music is very close to the tune of the Broadway version. But you sort of found out that like they stopped doing that as the show went on. Yeah. So basically in the commentary, David Merkin is sort of like listening back to it and being like, yeah, you know, as time went on, the lawyers got more and more worked up around you know, how close you were to the content. And so he said, like, now you couldn't do this. You couldn't just kind right. of totally rip off the melody and just change the words. They'd want you to do something that's more of a sound alike, which, of course, like Alf Clausen is excellent at anyway. But this is very, very close to what the, the to the actual musical number in the movie. New York, New York, a wonderful town. The Bronx is up and the battery's down. The people ride in a hole in the ground. New York, New York, it's a wonderful town. To the point where, during the actual musical number in the movie, I kept being like, "Why? This doesn't sound right. Like this is right. this is not how it should be." Because <laughs> I'm so used to this version of it that I was like, "No, this this is wrong." Like it feel to me anyway. It feels like the movie's parodying The Simpsons, even though obviously that is not the case. Right? Because yeah, that, totally. I I can't figure out whether it's just because <laughs> I knew the Simpsons version first, or if I genuinely like the Simpsons version better. Right. But the the movie version sounds too upbeat and not like jazzy enough like the so I, I you know i don't have the terminology right but like the notes are just ever so slightly different and the simpsons one is a little bit more edgy or something yeah whereas the the other one is all like major in its tone so anyway i, I also love on the commentary david merkin is like yeah we pretty much kicked sinatra and gene kelly's ass in this <laughs> you mentioned that you had not seen on the town no. private like this was your introduction was through this number correct yeah that's right and you know to me this is such a perfect example of what this podcast is all about in that i had zero context for this at all right. not like not only had i not seen the movie but like when i watched this it was such a foreign object to me like i had never really watched a movie like this before, like a musical of this era. Right. And like had to go and do research to actually understand what I just saw. And right. like, because the conventions are just so different. So like, yeah, it, you know, following the, this parody down the rabbit hole really led to me like learning a lot about Broadway musicals and about, you know, the conventions of like how storytelling changed over time and like, why is it the way it is? I thought that was like a really fun journey that this movie took me on. It's an interesting choice that one of their earliest like true musical number, musical style, Broadway musical style musical numbers is from this movie on the town, which is not a particularly memorable or famous. I mean, I guess the New York, New York number kind of is, but like you would think that if you're going to pick something to, to parody, like you'd go with the Wizard of Oz or like any of the other Oklahoma or any of these other famous movie musicals, but they picked the sort of like less popular Gene Kelly musical. It's just, right. I wonder why this was the one that they went with, uh, I guess, apart from the storytelling. Well, but it, because even then, like the number Springfield, Springfield, it's not that relevant to the plot. Like it's just a big show tune and then Bart joins the Juju Camper. Right. So there's not even a story reason for it to be this number. Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me that's just like, you know, maybe when they were writing, they're like, okay, so, you know, how do we get to the point where Bart very uncharacteristically joins the junior campers, right? Right. So you need a reason for that to happen. It's a classic sort of like act one plot switcheroo where <laughs> that, that The Simpsons pulls all the time where it seems to be about one thing and then it does something completely different. 
And so, you know, I feel like they were like, okay, well, what if they had a crazy night on the town? Right. You know, and literally, I wonder if someone just said that out loud and someone else who knew the musical was like, oh, they could do that show from on the town. Like that movie. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, that could that very well could be it. But but it really speaks to the fact that like some some people on The Simpsons writing staff must be musical fans. Right. Because it is a pretty deep cut at the time. It seems like it was well liked, well received, you know, considered important, still considered pretty important in the history of movie musicals. Mm -hmm. But like no one I know growing up ever watched this movie or ever knew about this movie. You know, it's not one of the ones that is like stuck around in the culture in the same way as, you know, singing in the rain or, or other things by Gene yeah. Kelly or of this era. Yeah. It's one of those, like, I feel like I knew of the on that. See, it's, this is one of those things where it gets so murky where I'm like, I, I don't know if I'm familiar with the opening number, New York, New York number because of the Simpsons or if I remember seeing it in something else, I know it It seems like the film was featured in That's Entertainment. So uh, for a little bit of context, there was this movie in the early 70s called That's Entertainment, which I believe was hosted by Gene Kelly, co-hosted by him and Fred Astaire. And it's essentially like a Simpsons clip show. It's like a two hour movie, but it's just like, here are the greatest hits from all the movie musicals from the last 40 years because again this is at a time when home video doesn't exist right so it's not like you could go out to blockbuster and rent your favorite musical so it was sort of like i want to see all my favorite numbers from all my favorite musicals in one sitting this was your way of doing it and so i know it was included in that and i must i have to assume that the new york new york number was the song that was included in it what's especially interesting is that the contemporary broadway musical that they reference in it is cats which like at the time you know, was along with Phantom of the Opera and Les Miserables are probably like, it, those are the big three. Like, those are the three right. musicals that every single person in North America knew about. So and they're, that's they're, the most fun one to make fun of. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's the easiest to make fun of. And, and at that time went on to become like the longest running show on Broadway before it was supplanted by Phantom. But yeah, all the choices here are just so interesting to me. But I think you're right. I feel like there's got to be, you know, with with the fact that all of these guys are, you know, East Coast elites, they probably spent a lot of time, you know, digging in the troves of Broadway right. musicals. So Yeah, you got you gotta think like when they were at Harvard and before that. Some of these people were definitely, you know, performing in musical theater or were just brought up with it or whatever. And I do feel like, you know, this number definitely also really screams Broadway, right? Mm -hmm. The sort of style of it is yes. is just sort of that classic, you know so energetic and peppy and all about New York, right? You yep. know, and I feel like all of that stuff also fits with the, with, you know, Millhouse's like, let's go crazy Broadway style. So that's part of it. But yeah, you know, at the time, like this is not the kind of musical that was popular at all. No. And that's also kind of classic Simpsons of going way back to like, the early days of showbiz in a whole bunch of ways. Well, it's just interesting too, because as we discovered in our, you know, season one, it was like, like you said, they kind of don't like to parody contemporary stuff. They like to parody stuff that has withstood right. the test of time. But which is, again, why, like, to me, it seems like this is an odder choice. Because, like, when we look at the other episodes that we're talking about this season and the stuff that they're parodying, it feels a little more like, oh, those make sense. Whereas right. this one does feel a little, like, out of place. But, but the, you know, I think a lot of, you know, it's one of the things we're learning through this podcast, too, is just that, like, not all of the parodying 
or references are meant to be understood, I guess, by the audience. Right. They're just fodder for, you know, riffing, right? And like, I feel like you really see that here because it gives them the opportunity to have exactly the kind of montage that happens at the beginning of this movie where they're going around Springfield and doing all these crazy things, right? And like, yeah. I was I was reading the Simpsons World Guide for this episode, right? And like, there's all sorts of funny things that come up in the background when they're like, you know, gallivanting around Springfield. Like some of the signs you see are models and model decals, triple G <laughs> rated, sweet tooth, bootleg records, all night arcade, uh, batting, and bicycle seat covers. <laughs> so it's sort of like a parody of like lots of movies where some people go and get drunk or whatever. Yeah. And it's sort of this blurry montage of all the places they go, right? Even actually It's a Wonderful Life has something kind of like this uh, yep. at the end in Pottersville, right? But it's all, you know, kid stuff, which, you know, that's so that's a really fun gag. You get the you get the Broadway gag. You get them running into Barney and he has that great line. What is it? I don't know where you magic pixies came from, but I like your pixie drink. It's a good platform, a springboard to like go do all this other crazy stuff. Yeah. And those neon sign uh, gags that they do, uh, that that is a running joke that has been done many times over the Simpsons. Right. So, yeah, it's just a way for them to do all this other stuff. And the other thing that I think confirms that is that this is the only reference to On the Town. It's not right. one of those movies that they parody again and again and again. This is just sort of a, a parody of convenience, maybe. Yeah, a one-off, as it were. I mean, although, that being said, there are still lots of other great movie references and parodies and jokes in this episode. Uh, I was sort of, like, writing some of them down as we went. There was, you know, Martin plays a My Dinner with Andre the video game <laughs> in the arcade. That's one of my um, favorites. Thirsting for a way to name the unnameable to express the inexpressible. Tell me more. There's the classic, uh, you call that a knife line from Crocodile Dundee with Mole Man. The whole like river journey element, I I think is meant to be a reference to Deliverance. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think so. And then there's the ending, which has got like that sort of Friday the 13th and classic like, you know, campers in the woods sort of stuff. Well, and of course, Ernest Borgnine is, is, right, is, yeah, is the Ernest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then one of my favorite background gags where Lisa chastises Bart or Bart chastises, I can't remember who, but one of them chastises the other and be like, oh, come on, cartoons don't have to be 100% realistic. And, and in the back, like Homer's sitting on the couch and in the background, Homer walks by the window. Right. And it's just like, it's just one of those, like, it's so stupid, but it it's makes so me surreal. laugh. Yeah, it makes me laugh every single time. But yeah, totally. One of my favorites is is Homer's conversation with his brain in this episode, which yes. is also a running gag where he there's all sorts of great versions of this. I think there's one later in a later season where his brain actually like leaves. Yeah. <laughs> Just walks out the door. Um, but in this one, he's reaching under the couch because he wants a peanut and he, he finds $20 <laughs> instead. And then he's like, oh, $20. I wanted a peanut. And his brain says, $20 can buy many peanuts. And he says, explain how. <laughs> and his brain says money can be exchanged for goods and services <laughs> yeah and you know it's funny growing up my dad bought me being the Simpsons super fan that I was he bought me the the soundtrack album effectively it was like an, a right. CD of all of the sort of songs and song parodies that they did up until that point but then in between they had all these skits so you know Funnily enough, one of the songs, of course, included was the On the Town sequence, which is why this like those lyrics and that song is just like drilled into my brain because I used to listen to the CD constantly. But one of the other skits or like dialogue segments that is on this disc is that exact the whole <laughs> peanut thing. 
So again, it's just as it was playing out, I just could like I could recite it by memory because I had listened to it so many times. But totally. if you were to ask me, it's funny. I don't know that I would say this is one of the more memorable episodes or one of my favorite episodes. But ironically, like I, I do have so much of it memorized because so much of it ended up on that disc. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so should we uh, maybe dig into the movie? Yeah, I mean, so today we're talking about the 1949 musical On the Town co-directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donen and based on the Broadway musical On the Town, which was in turn based on a ballet <laughs> called Fancy Free, choreographed by Jerome Robbins, who, of course, would be uh, best known for directing and choreographing a West Side Story. So, Nate, how would you sum up this movie in a sentence? Okay, here we go. Um, <laughs> three sailors get on shore leave in New York okay. City yep. and try to get laid. Yeah, that's, that's, pretty, that's much pretty much it. That's I mean, not, really, there's not a lot to this movie. Yeah, the uh, as book musicals go, this this is a thin, 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 thin plot. You did, however, find the sort of like, again, we always love to pull official synopsises from interesting locations. So you found one from, was it from a movie poster? Yes, yeah, from a movie poster of the era. Um, okay. And it's definitely written in the vernacular of the era. Um, so I guess, uh, do you want to read it, Adam? Yeah, sure. I, it, I, okay, here we go. Three gay gobs go on a 24-hour shore leave, and it's a musical frolic from the Bronx to the Battery. They get taken in tow by female taxi driver, make havoc with a dinosaur in the museum, rock Radio City with laughs, raise the roof on the Empire State with song, and steal kisses in Central Park. They land back in Brooklyn Navy Yard, exhausted but happy. It's wonderful fun, so come along, everyone. It's a wonderful time! I really should have done that with, like, my 1930s voiceover, man. Like, <laughs> it's wonderful fun, so come along, everyone! Oh, we can um, do that in post. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that covers basically every single beat of the film. Uh, yeah. So that should give you a sense of how much there is to take in here. <laughs> yeah. It's mostly just an excuse to get from, you know, dance or, or musical number to the next one, you know? Yeah, and to give each individual person their own solo, essentially. Right, right. Good point. All right, so we'll t what's, the, what's the deal with the background on this? What, how, how did this thing come to be? So uh, the original production was composed by Leonard Bernstein with the book, which for those who are not as well-versed in musicals, the book of a musical refers to essentially the script. So... You will have a lyricist who writes lyrics to the songs, but you sometimes will have a different person who writes the script or the dialogue in between the songs. Sometimes they're the same person, sometimes they're not. So in this case, the book and lyrics are written by the same people, which was Betty Comden and Adolph Green. And it was choreographed by Jerome Robbins, who, as we mentioned, becomes, you know, sort of a household name at the time for West Side Story, and was directed by George Abbott, who... He's a legend of this era and was a mentor to Hal Prince, who to our generation is probably best known as the director of shows like Phantom. I would consider him the greatest director in Broadway history, but I'm a little bit biased, maybe. Though we, I just got back from New York and my wife and I went to the Broadway Museum and they had a whole plaque on Hal Prince. And they also sort of essentially said, like, would you consider how many successes he's had? He's basically like the greatest and most successful Broadway director of all time. So anyway. The GOAT. Yeah, he, essentially he's the GOAT. Um, it opened in 1944 and as we mentioned was based on this ballet called Fancy Free. 
the number that you see at the end of the film, which is basically a ballet recap of everything we've just seen, that's my understanding of that's essentially what Fancy Free was. Right. That vibe, for sure. Yeah, exactly. That vibe. So the context here, though, is that Oklahoma, which is a very, very famous Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, comes out the year before and effectively sort of revolutionizes the Broadway musical by making it less of a musical review and much more similar to plays, like where narrative becomes a primary element. Showboat back in the 30s really revolutionized things, but it's sort of like Oklahoma is this like other tipping point. So from that point on, Broadway musicals start to take the shape that we're sort of more familiar with today, where it's like song and story are intertwined, the songs are moving the plot along, et cetera, et cetera. In 1944, four artists in their 20s were inspired by the success of Oklahoma to make their own what they referred to as an integrated musical. Writing duo Adolph Green and Betty Comden, composer Leonard Bernstein, and choreographer Jerome Robbins, they write this little manifesto about what they do and don't want in their musical. They want it to be integrated in terms of, like, the cast. They want it to be direct and honest. They don't want it to be fancy or phony. And it's important to contextualize the fact that this original musical is coming out in 1944 during the war. And that sort of colors everything that is going on in the show. I mean, even like the cabbie character, right? Um, In the original show, it would have made total sense that she was a cab driver. Whereas in the movie, they have to justify that she's still a cab driver after the war, right? Yeah, exactly. And Frank Sinatra says to her, hey, a female cab driver, like, what's going on? The war is over, toots. (laughs) But yeah, so the stage production comes out during the war. The film is released after the war. And therefore, like you say, they sort of have to do a little bit of like, rejigging of the plot and the vibe to sort of match the fact that while the musical was very much playing up this element of wartime, you know, post-war, everything is a lot more celebratory and a lot more, you know, hey, we won. So there had to be some adjustments there. Interesting. So then when it comes to the film adaptation, MGM buys the rights to the musical before it's even opened. And they bankroll the Broadway run of the show. They even sort of wanted to get George Abbott to direct the film version, too. But Louis B. Mayer, the head of the studio, basically hated the stage version. He called it smutty and communistic. (laughs) And uh, Gene Kelly basically had to beg him to adapt the show to the screen. And they changed a bunch. So it's directed by both Kelly and Stanley Donen, their first time in the role, which is amazing when you consider that this is their first film that they guys directed. And produced by Arthur Freed who is the head of MGM's legendary Freed Unit, uh, which, if you want to know more about the Freed Unit, like, the research is out there, but essentially, he was the guy who was defining what the MGM movie musical of the time was. Right, so, I mean, this is where I, like, have absolutely no context at all. This is part of why, watching this, I was like, I have no idea what I'm watching, and had to kind of, like, get used to all the conventions. So, can you, like, just... Give me a little bit of a primer on, like, what makes an MGM musical an MGM musical? And, like, what what's the history there? For sure. So, again, the thing that's... It's important to sort of remember film history and then also, like, musical theater history. But, like, right. in the 1920s, you have the, like, advent of sound in with the jazz singer. And then a lot of films end up becoming musical films because it was a great way to take advantage of sound. But they were a very specific kind of movie musical they were much more sort of like put on a show like you know the premise of like the Muppet movie of like oh they're going to tear down the theater so we got to put on a show to save the theater so many musicals of the era were that and you know (laughs) they're famous for like the Busby Berkeley musicals Busby Berkeley is like if you've ever seen one of those sort of shots from a movie musical in black and white where it's like an overhead shot and it's a circle of dancers and it's very choreographed 
and they're all moving in time and it's very elaborate. That's like Busby Berkeley was famous uh, for that. Okay. And okay. then like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. So like, you know, the like tap shoes and the top hat and tails. Like right. the, those are the kind of musicals that there were. MGM then sort of comes along and changes everything with The Wizard of Oz. That's like a technical achievement and sort of defines this idea of how movie musicals for the next decade are going to be. They're going to be sure. technicolor, very elaborate, very impressive. But again, we're going to start integrating the songs and the story much more together. The song that is carrying the plot forward or is giving us insight into the character versus just like a vaudeville number on stage. And that's the plot of the show. Right, right. It is interesting that like The Wizard of Oz predates Oklahoma by quite a bit, right? In right. terms of, you know, figuring out this integrated musical idea. Yes, exactly. And and again, Wizard of Oz sort of changes everything. And it really is something right. that we're going to have to cover one day on the show because it is so. Oz. It's one of Matt Groening's favorite movies. Absolutely. Favorite things, actually. Yeah. But I mean, it really does sort of it, it does. It is it is a monumental shift in terms of ever, like everything in terms of filmmaking. So um, but the other thing to keep in mind at this time is that there was the star system, which I think for modern audiences, this whole idea is insane. Right. But like actors were signed to contracts with specific studios and could not make movies with other studios unless they had so much pull or someone was able to like use their sway to go to another studio. But the whole thing with MGM was that they boasted that they had the most stars. I think their big line was more stars than there are in the heavens. Like they had <laughs> Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and like all these people of the era that like you think of were all signed to MGM. Then we also get Stanley Donen, who, you know, is the director of what I think most people consider to be the greatest movie musical of all time, Singing in the Rain, starring Gene Kelly. Sure. So, okay. So this is all context to say while musicals are starting to become popular on the big screen, we're also seeing a surge of like legendary Broadway classics coming to the Great White Way. So you're getting Oklahoma, Carousel, Annie Get Your Gun, South Pacific. All of these will eventually get film adaptations as well. And these are more of what we think of when we think of like a traditional book-style Broadway musical with plots and stories rather than just like a bunch of catchy songs very loosely tied together. So as this transition is happening on stage, it's now also happening on screen. And that brings us to 1949, where basically Gene Kelly says, I want to make this movie. The film ends up winning the Oscar for Best Music scoring of a musical picture, which I think is really interesting because nowadays the Oscar is, you know, best original score. But at the time, there were so many musicals that literally it was like the award was best scoring of a musical, essentially. Right. Uh, and it also won a Golden Globe for Best Color Cinematography, because, again, at this time, you're making both color and black and white films. And uh, AFI, in one of their, like, greatest movie mus musicals of all time or whatever, this is ranked number 19. So, again, I guess it is more highly regarded than we maybe think of it as being. But to our generation, it kind of feels like a forgotten piece. Pretty forgettable, honestly. Uh, yeah. But what's interesting is that when the producer, Arthur Freed, saw the dailies, he apparently wrote a memo to Donan and Kelly saying, like, something along the effect of, like, Powell and Pressburger had nothing on you guys. Like, this is the greatest thing I have ever seen. Powell and Pressburger are famous for directing The Red Shoes, which is also considered, like, along with, like, Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain, is kind of considered not only to be one of the best movie musicals of all time, but also, like, just up there as one of the greatest films ever made. And 
the red shoes remember that because it's going to come up again later in our series on oh. on so uh yeah so that's sort of all the context for where where this thing came from and how it came to be so Adam, like you mentioned that there's a lot of differences between the stage show and the movie adaptation. So like what actually changed? So again, it's hard for me to say with like great authority because obviously I have not seen the stage adaptation. And unfortunately, as we know, uh, Broadway does not like to release professionally filmed productions. But as far as I can tell, the biggest sort of shift is that they really took only the basic premise and plot and only four songs from the original show actually wow. made the cut to the film. Composer Roger Edens was brought in to then write all these new songs. So the only four songs that made it are New York, New York, which obviously we've talked about, uh, Come Up to My Place, Miss Turnstiles, and A Day in New York. Hmm. Every other song in this in this film is unique to the film adaptation. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, and, and actually some of those are my favorite songs, I think. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I, ironically, yeah, it's arguably the best numbers in the film. So Right. And what about, you know, I mean, you mentioned as well, like, this is kind of a forgotten work. Why do you think that is for our generation, at least? Like, again, obviously, it's got lots of accolades. But like, again, why don't we know about this, but we know about Singing in the Rain? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's hard to say. I think, obviously, Singing in the Rain overshadows this. Like, if you think of a Gene Kelly musical, like, that's the one that comes to mind because it's just so iconic. Maybe for bigger musical theater nerds than us or, you know, people like my wife who literally studied Musical theater, it's better known. But yeah, to the population at large, it does seem to be kind of forgotten. Yeah. My sort of theory is that, at least in the movie version of it, it's not really about much, right? Like, you know, it's fine that it doesn't have a plot. Lots of things don't have a plot. But even, like, the themes in the show are not super clear in the movie version. And, you know, we'll get to it, particularly around the ending. But I think the stage show probably has a little bit more oomph to it in terms of that kind of stuff. And they maybe sacrifice that for making it just more fun and, you know, listenable and taking advantage of Frank Sinatra and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I think without something that sticks with you about it, like a message or a story, I feel like it's really hard for something to kind of stick in the culture, you know? And again, it's sort of riding that line of like Oklahoma is coming out at the same time. And as I said, that's really the tipping point that starts to shift the direction of Broadway musicals for the next sort of 10 or 15 years. Right. So this isn't really it's not quite there yet. And again, the big thing when the MGM musical as a form was coming to a head was like it was during the war. People wanted escapism. People wanted just to have fun. They were going to the movies to forget their troubles. And so. It wasn't uncommon for them just not to deal with, like, the heavier stuff. And what I think is so interesting is that apparently the Broadway show did do that. Like, it did right. try to, to grapple with the fact that the war is going on and, you know, we've got 24 hours in New York. we got to live life to its fullest because we might die tomorrow. Whereas the movie very much doesn't want to address that. Like, they're sailors on shore leave, but, like, we don't know what they're really on shore leave from. And we don't know where they're going to. And none of that stuff is addressed. It's just like, we're going to have fun in New York. So, right. yeah, I, I think that's maybe what it is, is like as the musical as an art form sort of evolves to become much more of a way of discussing heavier, meatier subjects, fluffier stuff like this just sort of falls by the wayside. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, should we kind of run down the characters and the uh, actors behind them to just get us started in talking about the movie itself? Absolutely, because, I mean, for all the film's flaws and the fact that it's not super memorable, it does star uh, two absolutely gargantuan names in right. it. You know, right. the first being 
of course, Gene Kelly. Yep. And like the whole ensemble is really great, including a few people who aren't as as well known for other things. But yeah. like the ensemble is kind of great front to back. That That's one thing I'll definitely give this movie. Yeah. I mean, the performances of this film, I think, are what save it for me. You know, for all totally. the for all the flaws in the story or even the music, it is extremely well directed and extremely well performed. Right. Right. Definitely. So Gene Kelly, right? He mm-hmm. obviously, you know, you could just by watching this, I can tell fantastic dancer, right? Yeah. Choreographer, too. And in this, also becoming a director. So where, you know, he's a bit of an auteur, right? Yes. Kind of control over the whole experience. So where does this fall in his sort of evolution as an auteur? Yeah, so I I mean, again, I'm not... I'm by no means a Gene Kelly expert or anything, but my understanding is, like, he he comes to MGM around 1942 uh, for the movie For Me and My Gal, which also features Judy Garland, again, sort of like a legend. But he doesn't actually dance his own choreography until the movie Thousands Cheer the next year in 1943. But yeah, this is the first film he is credited as a director, but it's really an American in Paris and Singing in the Rain that sort of solidify his place in the history of the movie musical. I mean, those two films are absolutely iconic and his work in those films impact generations to come. Uh, What I think is actually really interesting, though, uh, is that he apparently turned down the chance to direct The Sound of Music. Wow. Uh, the, the, the film adaptation of The Sound of Music, as did Stanley Donan. And allegedly, when the screenwriter showed up to try and convince him, he said, go and find someone else to direct this piece of shit. Which, as someone who has not a lot of love for The Sound of Music, I know that is a controversial opinion. Knowing that Gene Kelly also refers to it as a piece of shit, it warms my my cockles. But yeah, he's just incredibly influential on you know, the way that dance on film was both sort of represented and shot. And his work is sort of this blend of tap, ballet, and sort of modern dance. And I, you know, again, I'm by no means an expert here, but like the next person who's going to make an indelible mark like this is Bob Fosse once he starts making stuff like Cabaret. And then you have Frank Sinatra, right, who's positioned in the movie as kind of like a young yeah. uh, hot hotshot, right? Or whatever. Yeah. He's kind of a pop idol, right? And, you know, it's funny. Like, I I always picture old Sinatra. I cannot get him. Like, yeah, I think of Sinatra in the Rat Pack. Right. So. And, and so, and I, I think because I've never seen him on film before, mm-hmm. I really had no idea, uh, how do I put this delicately, <laughs> that he was so scrawny. <laughs> Yeah, well, he's a very famously scrawny. Yeah, which I had no idea. And so he's, you know, he is kind of the runt of the group, which is so not the persona that I think of when I think of Sinatra. So it was interesting for me to see him in that role. But well, so where what's his deal at this point? Well, before we get too deep into that, how old do you think he is in this movie? Because like, harkening <laughs> back to the conversation about Sir Sean Connery in You Only Live Twice, when I found out how old he was, it was jaw-dropping. How old do you think Sinatra is in this movie? <sighs> Knowing that he is playing the sort of, like, the youngest of the bunch, but based on his right. demeanor and how he looks, how old do right. you think he is? I'm gonna say 35. Okay, yeah, he, you nailed it. He's 34. He's our age. Which, 34? Okay, all right. Which, I don't think he looks 34. He I, I, Again, it's sort of, to it's me... It's impossible I, to place. I think. Yeah, because he, he looks like he's a forty-year-old playing like a twenty-five-year-old. Like it right, doesn't. Right, because he he has the build of someone who's younger, but yes. his face looks <laughs> like he's in his forties. Well, yeah, he's got that. I've been smoking two packs right. 
an hour and drinking lots of whiskey Ex face. Exactly. But I think smoking, you can't underestimate <laughs> the impact of smoking on the age of people around this era, especially. Yes, absolutely. Um, no, and I'm I'm very much the same way. Like Frank Sinatra is one of those those sort of characters that like I knew of without really knowing how or why, because like I never watched Frank Sinatra movies. I didn't listen to Frank Sinatra music, but he was just like a name that like when Correct. he showed up to something, you're like, oh yeah, it's Sinatra. Like he's right. one of the most famous people in American history, right? So it's just- Yeah, and there's always like certain songs that are ubiquitous. Of course, of course. You know, including New York, New York. You know, yes. The, what is it, the theme from New York? The theme New York, from so New York, New York, which was originally yeah. actually sung by Liza Minnelli, but then made famous by Frank Sinatra. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, like, oh, so watching this, I was sort of curious as well. Like, okay, well, where is this falling in Sinatra's career? Because it's, he's being positioned as sort of like the young, scrappy, like, you know, he, what's the word? He's but, the greenhorn. The green, perfect. Yeah, he's the greenhorn. Right. But I was curious, like, okay, at this point, is Sinatra, Sinatra as it were? So I did a little bit of digging into this because, again, I am by no means a Sinatra expert. So Sinatra mania apparently sort of kicks in around 1941. He starts appearing in films at this time, but not in leading roles. He starts hitting his leading role status around like 1944. Now the Rat Pack period, which is sort of the period that I most associate with Sinatra and like what my dad thinks of, that's in the late 50s with the 1960s film Ocean's Eleven. Not the good remake with George Clooney, but like the original borderline unwatchable version. Uh, that marks the first time that the iconic group of the Rat Pack, because the Rat Pack apparently like changed over years, but like the most iconic, recognizable team first appeared in Ocean's Eleven. Sure. But he first stars with Gene Kelly, because they actually made three movies before. They first started together in the 1945 film called Anchors Away, which right. ironically is also about sailors on leave, though at this time they're on leave in Hollywood. Right. And the Different tangle, sailors, though. Not a sequel. <laughs> not a sequel. Like, it's just, And it's very bizarre that they're like, yeah, let's go back and do that again. And the tagline for some of the marketing materials of On the Town was twice as gay as Anchors Away, which right. nice little rhyme pattern there. But uh, yeah, so I guess Anchors Away was well known enough that they're using it to market this film. But after this film comes out, he sort of hits like a bit of a career slump. And then sees it sort of surge again when he makes movies like From Here to Eternity, which actually he wins Best Supporting Actor for that. And then he makes The Man with the Golden Arm, which is like a drunk movie and like, again, more dramatic roles. But what's interesting is that he also then would go on to star in the film adaptation of Guys and Dolls mm -hmm. alongside of all people. And this to this day blows my mind that this is the other male lead in the Guys and Dolls movie musical, Marlon Brando. Wow. Who is... Not someone who, when you think of, like, great singers, I don't think Marlon Brando comes to anybody's mind. Yeah. No. Not, no. not, a, not a particularly... Except for, except for his role in Streetcar Named Desire. That's, yeah. you know, yeah, he's fantastic course. in that yeah. musical. Yeah, exactly. Ella! So, May, what did you think of Sinatra in this? You know, I mean, obviously, he's got a great singing voice. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he's very good. <laughs> okay. Um, I think his dancing is pretty bad. I, he, he really, because I thought for a non-dancer, he's not right. terrible. Well, yeah, but exactly. You know, I was reading up a little bit on Gene Kelly, and, and one of his whole things was, like, you want the dancing to look effortless, yes. right? You want people to watch this and be like, oh, yeah, I could do that, right? Totally. And you are not supposed to show the effort. <laughs> okay. And that's the thing that I feel like with watching Frank Sinatra dance is it's like, he's keeping up. 
Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you can, but he is working. working. Okay. Yes. But again, he's keeping up with one of the greatest dancers of all time. Sure, so fair, like, fair enough. Fair enough. And maybe it's like, it's a little unfair to, you know, put him next to literally what people consider to be the greatest. Like it's, Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly are the two people when they say, like, who are the greatest dancers on film? It's those two guys. So it's like you right, got him right. up against literally one of the greatest of all time. I think yeah. even a really good dancer is going to pale in comparison next to him. But yeah, Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I was doing a little digging on Sinatra as well, and I found out that apparently he was super reluctant to make this movie oh. because of Anchors Away. Right. Because he was like... I already did this movie. Fair it's, enough. The, it's the same damn thing. And apparently he also did not like the outfit because he had to actually wear a hairpiece and also <laughs> pad his rear end in the outfit in order for him to kind of look right in it. Right. Um, and also I think that he did mention that like the dancing in this is harder than it was in Anchors Away. For and sure. he was skeptical that he could do it. Right. You know, but Gene Kelly, I guess, was tutoring him the whole time. In all of their movie collaborations, right. he like had to spend a lot of time just helping Sinatra kind of get a grip on the choreography. And evidently was a very patient man because I right. I also read that like Sinatra was uh, a bit temperamental and when he wasn't getting <laughs> things kind of wasn't the nicest about it. But Kelly being right. a consummate professional, he just patiently helped him out and, you know, got him to where he needed to be. Yeah. So that that was the other thing I kind of dug up was that I think it was maybe in one of the Sinatra biographies. Kelly and Donham were interviewed and basically said that he was a total pain in the ass on set. They, and I think they were like friends, but he was just a, because he was impatient and, and, you know, would throw fits and stuff like that. And so they apparently they would play pranks on him. So, you know, Donham was telling this story that apparently, you know, at the MGM commissary, they had square tables with blue plastic tops that were all pushed up against the walls like a cafeteria, right? And uh, the only person who had a different one was Jerry Mayer, okay. who was Louis B. Mayer's brother, right? right? The head of the studio. And so one day, Donnan and Kelly just are kind of like, maybe we could just like, you know, screw with Sinatra a little bit. <laughs> and so they're sort of like, hey, you know, Frankie, like, wouldn't it be great if we had a circular table, you know, because then we could be sitting closer to each other, right? And <laughs> a- as soon as they say this, Frank Sinatra's like, you watch, I'll get us a round table. And so he goes over and oh gets in a God. huge argument with uh, <laughs> Jerry Mayer and, and like threatens to quit and all this stuff and all just over this like stupid idea of a round table. So all that to say, it seems like it was pretty easy to get Frankie riled up. <laughs> right. Well, and it should be noted too, that like, because we didn't actually touch on this yet. So this movie is being made at the height of Sinatra mania. He is a massive star, which again, is part of why I find it sort of hard to watch because I just can't get out of my mind and I'm like, that's Frank Sinatra. It's just like one of those things where he's almost too big of a celebrity to be credible as an actor. But this film was famous for the fact that it, unlike many musical movies of the time, it wasn't just shot on sound stages. They actually went and shot in New York, which at the time just wasn't very common. And because of Sinatra mania and the fact that everybody wanted to get a glimpse of him, they had to be like kind of surreptitious about it. So they allegedly they would hide cameras in the back of like vans and film through those so that they could film these like musical sequences in that opening New York, New York number where the guys are very visibly in New York. That's how they were able to do it. And I think they said like in the scene where they're in Rockefeller Center, like if you look closely, you can see that there are like like people 
basically lined up trying to get pictures of Frank Sinatra, and they right. just like they, they couldn't edit it out. They, there's yeah, yeah, no, there, no way to work around it. So, I mean, like I said, there is this pretty amazing ensemble cast of like all these other folks as well that like don't have the same name recognition probably, but are all, I think, really, really talented. So you have like Vera Allen. So had you ever seen anything with Vera Allen before? She's the... I mean, I, I might have, but like, she, no, she didn't jump out. It wasn't like, oh, well, that's so-and-so that I remember from such and such. Um, right, right. So, so she's playing Miss Turnstiles, right? Who is the, you know, uh, the love interest of Gene Kelly's character. Right? Yeah, sort of an ingenue character. And, right, uh, right. And yeah, supposed to be this gorgeous woman that Gene Kelly meets and can't get out of his mind. Right. And I, you know, I hadn't totally put this together, but I was reading a... Uh, a review of the movie that kind of described her as like a Cinderella character. And there is a bit of that too, because she's actually, you know, as we find out throughout the movie, she's sort of presenting as this person who's like a dancer and a model and like very high class. Minor celebrity. Yeah, minor celebrity. Gene Kelly is under the impression that she's a celebrity, whereas everyone who's native to New York is like, Miss Turnstile, like that's not a big deal. Right, right. And and actually, she's from the same small town as Gene Kelly's character. Right. And, and is actually, like, paying her way with dance classes by basically, like, kind of doing burlesque, let's say, yes, which, at, uh, at Coney Island, right? Which I believe she's actually referred to as a coochie dancer. Correct. Which I think is, like, a, the a, deli- yes, a delightfully 1949 term for what she's doing. Yes, for sure. You know, in one of her dances, she, like, is picking up a handkerchief with her teeth. Or something like that. Yeah. Which I'm like, I'm like, in real life, that's not a handkerchief. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, but she's uh, she's fantastic. She's amazing. Yeah, Yeah. I think I just want to call it that. I think she's an absolutely amazing dancer. The only other thing that I've ever seen her in is White Christmas. Oh, Um, okay. And she so she's in that. She also plays the love interest opposite like, God, I can't remember. uh, Danny Crosby? Okay. Um, and, and she's amazing in that as well. Just like a really talented dancer. Those are probably the movies she's best known for. Interesting. Uh, but like she's fully keeping up with Gene Kelly in like yeah. all of those dance numbers and also brings her own like ballet skills to the table and everything too. So were there any others that kind of jumped out at you? I mean, I love the other guy, like not, right. not Gene Kelly and not Frank Sinatra. You kind of feel bad for him because it's like two of these giant names and also... Jules Munchen, like not a right. name I'm ever going to remember, but I I do think like as the comedic relief character, I mean he's he great it. in that role, and yeah. I really really enjoyed him. Yeah, yeah, I love his voice. He's got great comedic timing. Yeah, he reminds me a lot of the Lion from the Wizard of Oz. Oh, interesting. Okay, he's, he's got that vibe. Like the, he has the same kind of voice and a bit of the same kind of temperament as well. Right, he's kind of goofy and he's actually kind of like a fraidy cat at, yeah. at times and stuff like that so i think why he sort of spoke to me is that he's the role that i would play in the high school production of this if we were to <laughs> right. have done it like the goofy kind of right. non-singing character right and then you have the other two sort of female leads right you have betty right. garrett and you have ann miller and both of them i think are also so good so yeah. so good right so you have betty garrett she's playing the cabbie Right? Okay. And, well, I, I uh, really liked her character. Yeah, again, like the, the comedic timing and stuff is just so great. The dialogue is so good and she delivers it perfectly. I also really love their musical number that she has with Sinatra, where she's actually the one doing like a lot of the singing. 
and he's not really and, doing the Sinatra thing. And she's doing a lot of the sexual harassment, uh, yeah. which is also what I thought was so funny about this. The, the tables have been turned on Mr. Sinatra, so uh, that's kind right, of fun. for sure. Yeah, this is why Mayer thought it was communistic, you know, <laughs> yeah, smutty exactly. and communistic. Um, but yeah, I think she does an amazing job. I'm not really that familiar with either of these shows, but apparently she went on to be in All in the Family and in oh, Laverne okay. and Shirley okay. as, yeah. as a sort of, you know, like side character. So right. that's that's probably, again, what she was best known for. And apparently she met Jules Munchen when they were both performing in the Borscht Belt. So like oh, okay. in the sort of Catskills, like the, yep. the Jewish summer camp sort of situation, they had a lot of performances, lots of right. comedy, and a lot of people like cut their teeth there. And so that they knew each other from that situation before. So that's kind of interesting. And then Ann Miller, the only reason why I knew who Ann Miller was is because she's also in You Can't Take It With You, which, which right. I watched preparing for It's a Wonderful Life. And she actually plays a tap dancing character in that as well. But again, her like tap dancing in particular in that uh, horribly racist <laughs> but very entertaining number prehistoric man is very impressive. Like she she's just killing it, you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then it was interesting too because I guess the only actor to to reprise their role from the Broadway production was Alice Pierce, who plays the roommate with the cold. Who you know she's. <laughs> Very, very sweet and very lovely. But yeah, apparently that was the only the only actor from the original Broadway production to to sort of transfer over to the film, which is surprising that they didn't bother to like bring anybody else. But yeah, they must have just they were going for stars right. and names, I guess. But I guess well and well, but also like two of the people that were in the original cast ended up continuing to write the show, right? right? So it's yes. like I don't know if we mentioned this, the role of Ozzy, which is Jules Munchen and Ann Miller's role were actually the two people who also wrote the script in the original. Right, right. And so they, they went on to continue writing the script. Maybe they just felt like it was too much, and, you know, yeah. didn't want to be in it. Or maybe they thought that these folks would have more star power or just performed it better. But yeah, it is interesting that that's the one role that carries over. <laughs> Go figure. So let's dig a little bit into like the scenes and the themes of the film. More than anything, I want to get your perspective on this, Nate, because as a former New Yorker, how did you feel about the portrayal of the city here? Yeah, I mean, it is awesome to see New York of that era on film. Totally. I, I'm always fascinated seeing like on location scenes of cities from different periods in time. Right. And so seeing this in whenever they shot it, like 1948 or whatever, is really, really cool. And in a lot of ways, it some things are very similar and some things are totally different. Like the very beginning is shot at the Brooklyn Navy Yards. Right. Um, which now is like co-working space. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's been totally gentrified to hell yeah. and is is like home to all these startups and stuff like that. But, you know, at that point, it was like a working Navy Yard, Navy yard. of course. Yeah. Right. And so seeing that was very, very cool. And like seeing the view of Manhattan from there. I love that. And then a lot of the other stuff, it's very much a tourist's impression of Manhattan. Yeah, travelogue, as it were. Right, exactly. It is like a travelogue. It's a good way of thinking about it, of like, it's treating New York like, you know, lots of foreign locales are treated in James Bond movies. <laughs> where it's just like, we're just going to show you the greatest hits and what makes this place, for lack of a better word, exotic, right? Yeah. But then the other thing that's interesting, of course, is it's like you have these three guys who are outsiders and are visiting as tourists, and they're interacting with these women who are locals, who are kind of bringing their local knowledge and 
the um, Come Up to My Place song, mm-hmm. right? The whole shtick is that Sinatra has this really out of date guidebook that he's reading and he's saying he wants to go to the, what is it? The Hippodrome. <laughs> and she's sort of like, that hasn't been there for a decade. Yeah, she says, right? what, what year is this guidebook from anyway? And he goes, oh, 1905. <laughs> right, right. And she's like, yeah, this city changes pretty fast, basically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I like that dynamic. One of the sort of gags that really stuck out to me was in the finale car chase, which, you know, maybe we'll talk about that, but that whole section kind of sucks. Um, but, you know, they're crossing the, the Brooklyn Bridge and Gaby's like, Hey, Hildy, they're catching up with us. I can see their faces. No fun for them either. They can see yours. No kidding, Hildy. Do you think we can lose them? Sure. I know a place right across the Brooklyn Bridge where no one will find us. Yeah, what is it? Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Right. Which I, I laughed. I mean, again, it's amazing to think of, like, how much Brooklyn has changed since then. But totally. back then, Brooklyn was very much like a place you escape from, if only to Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but it's so funny because, like, although there are references to these, these like, places like the Hippodrome or whatever, at the same time, they're hitting a lot of spots that are still tourist spots to this day. You know, like Rockefeller Center, Empire State yep. Building, Radio City, and, of course, the Statue of Liberty. It's mm-hmm. just, it's kind of funny how, in many ways this travelogue has actually held up surprisingly well. Like, it's, yeah. it's it's this weird thing of, like, because it's made in, like, 1949 and not the 70s when, like, New York was an absolute dump, New York has sort of come full circle again. But I can't right. imagine what, watching this in the 70s must have been like because it, it must have had a very different vibe. Oh, for sure. Well, it is interesting, like, one of the few places they don't actually, like, really go to is Times Square. Is it? Right. It's pictured or Broadway, right? Like, right. It, you see it in the car chase, I think. But like, they don't actually go to like a Broadway show or anything like that, which I think is kind of funny. I, I mean, it's probably just a product of it. Like, you know, the stage show doesn't include that. And yeah. So when they adapted it, they didn't add it in. But it's just ironic, you know. Well, you know, and, but it I, is. it's also it's because of the timeline, right? Like Broadway sort of shifts and moves up to like and Times Square that we think of Times Square, it kind of falls apart in the 70s and then is revitalized in the 80s and 90s. So it's like, obviously, there's such a deep history there. But I think part of the charm of this movie is that it is this sort of like postcard of New York of a certain era. And I found that incredibly charming as a non-New Yorker and someone who, you know, only has visited it a few times. um, Yeah. And the stuff that's actually shot on location is pretty neat because it's like, I think most of it is in that beginning montage when they're yes. singing New York, New York. Yeah. But then there are a few things that really look to me like they are shot on location that are surprising. Like there's that Frank Sinatra number where he's singing You're Awful is what it's called. Right. You're awful. It's sweet. It's one of the ones that they added to the movie and it's very clearly written for Sinatra. Right. To take advantage right? of his... It's, it's taking advantage of his yeah. pruning sort of Yeah, voice. totally. But, like, where it's shot, it sure looks like they are on top of a tall building in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It's surprising to see a, a musical number paired with that location Absolutely. Still. Yeah, so. for sure. Awful nice to say you're mine. So let's dig into the sort of, like, musical lexicon a little bit. I want to know, like, what were some of your favorite songs in the show? Yeah, so, I mean, like you were sort of saying in the beginning, this movie really starts very strong mm-hmm. and then goes downhill from there. Tapers on, yeah, real quick. And and the third act is a total blur to me. It's, like, completely right. forgettable. 
So from that standpoint, like New York, New York is, I think, by far the best song. New York, New York, a wonderful town. The Bronx is up and the battery's down. The people ride in a hole in the ground. New York, New York, it's a wonderful town. I do love Come Up to My Place. Come up to my place. Let's go to Cleopatra's Needle. Which is that song where they're in the cab and it's Sinatra and the cabbie. And basically, he's like, I want to go see the sights. And she's like, I want to get you up to bed. Yeah. And it's just performed really, really well. They're in a like a fake cab that has mm-hmm. like a screen behind it. Yeah. And the way it's moving is very cartoonish. Yes. It's kind of like all of the braking and stuff is like moving forward really quickly and yeah. extremely like the feel of it, I think, is really, really fun and unique. So I, I like that a lot. Kind of begrudgingly, I I like the prehistoric man number. Like right. musically, it's it's very fun. My prehistoric man. Um, and it's even better. You know, we can talk about that separately, but it's even better as a dance number. Right. But it's so cringy and hard to watch because there are moments in that that I'm like, I want to scrub that from my brain. It starts so strong and then all of a sudden you're going to go whoa this took the turn yeah well yeah like i wanted because i wanted to i want to dig into the dance numbers because this is the thing for me you know in a musical there are the sort of two different types of songs there's uh what we we refer to as like a parking belt where you just sort of like stop the show and someone's going to sit there and they're going to sing to you and then you have like the musical numbers with like Uh. the dance sequences the dance numbers as someone who prefers spectacle in in his musicals i like the big sort of show-stopping you know big ensemble numbers where lots is going on. So for me, New York, New York, obviously, yes, that is definitely the best number in the show and the most memorable. And prehistoric man, yeah, like apart from the cringy elements of the dance on display and that is great. And another one is like Miss Turnstiles, which is a really interesting number because it's sort of the first number in the film that kind of breaks the the sort of we're on location, we're in New York. It kind of goes into this fantasy fantasy. realm. Yeah, and it's a yellow, of all things, a a yellow... um, seamless as they're referred to so it's sort of like a completely yellow void and just like little props here and there to help sort of tell the story that one doesn't really have any singing right it has some speaking and then like instrumental and then dance that's also one of my favorite sequences in the movie as well um you know again like all this is happening in the first half of the movie but yeah it's like it, it it's very very striking the dancing is fantastic again it's vera allen just killing it and lots of like fun, interesting ideas happening in the dance, like yeah. her miming sports and and interacting with all these extras. And yeah, just that it's happening in this sort of yellow void is really cool. I feel like it feels like it's from a later era almost. Like it doesn't feel like it's from 1949 to me. Apart from the final ballet sequence, it is the most theatrical number in the sure. show because it's 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 like I said, it's sort of doing the thing that And we haven't really discussed this that much, but it's the whole like idea of suspension of disbelief and how much easier it is on in theaters and why I think musicals in general and on the whole sort of work better as a theatrical experience than they do as a movie experience. On stage, you wouldn't bat an eye, but it does sort of start to feel not out of place, but it's definitely a moment in the film where you go, oh, this is something different. I think to the director and choreographer's credit, it works really, really well and it doesn't take you out of the film. Right. And there are very few moments like that in this film. Most of the dance numbers just take place on lo- on lo- I'm, I'm using on location in air quotes because I'm not. I don't necessarily mean literally on location in New York, but within in the, the world of the movie. In, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I and and like to contrast it though too, because like 
the ballet section at the end, right, is very clumsily introduced. Yes. Right? Because, like, I actually can't even quite think of what the transition point is for Miss Turnstiles where, you know, they're just kind of talking about mm-hmm. her and imagining who she is. And then it just kind of like you're just in this fantasy and it feels very natural because they're kind of imagining, right? Yeah. Whereas the <laughs> ballet number, it's just like pan over from Gene Kelly to a sign that sort of is, is talking about some show happening in New York. Yeah. And then it just kind of like turns into this show. And it's not really presented necessarily as like him imagining something. It just and feels like it's so shoehorned in compared to yeah, the, the first number. As a piece of dance on film, I think it's excellent and I really, really like it. And it's sure. it's interesting again because like Gene Kelly and Vera Allen are the only two who feature in both the film and then in the ballet sequence. All the other actors are replaced by actual dancers who can do the right. dancing. So, I mean, it's a very impressive and beautiful sequence that feels completely out of place and is kind of just there as maybe a reference to Fancy Free, the ballet that all of this is based on, but also right. just a way to like pad out the runtime because yeah, it just, it comes yeah. out of nowhere. It literally just rehashes everything we've just seen for no, not like this plot was so intricate that we needed a refresher. Like it, right. it just, it's so well, out of place and bizarre. And, and that's the thing is that like, it really goes against the whole sort of manifesto of what these like original people were writing in that mm-hmm. it's not integrated. Right. right. It's just like this standalone dance thing that doesn't advance the story, that doesn't do anything to tell you more about the characters. It's just an excuse to watch some very impressive dancing, mind you, but Inc- yeah. not. it doesn't really do anything, especially in the context of a movie. It really like slows everything down yeah. and takes you out of the movie. It's the moment that feels the most like theater and yeah. is the kind of thing when I'm at a musical... And we've gotten to the second act and this sort of thing turns up. I'm always like, oh, my God. Like, really? Yeah. Like, can we not like wrap this up? It's been it's been two hours. I got to pee. I, w- I was watching an interview with Gene Kelly about that section. And, you know, again, I guess maybe because he's so focused on kind of like making it feel so natural and like you're not seeing the work that goes into it. Is I it? hadn't really thought about how much work went into right. it. And so there's this section where he's dancing with... Uh, a sandwich board that has the Miss Turnstiles ad on it, right? right? And it's a very cool section from a choreography standpoint. But, like, there's this one part where he slides on his knees towards the sign. Yeah. And it happens really quickly, right? You don't really, like, notice it that much. But in this interview, he was basically saying that knee slide took 26 takes. Holy crap. 26 takes. because wow. Because literally... They were, like, rehearsing it beforehand, and then the night before they shot, they refinished the stage, and it didn't work anymore. And so, and so they had they sanded down the stage. They added rosin and tried it right. again. That didn't work, so then they waxed it and tried it again. And they just had to keep trying and trying and trying until finally they got it right. Um, wow. But it's like, again, it's this tiny moment that, like, you don't really think that much about when you're watching it. But it really took a lot of effort. And I'm sure there are like lots of elements of that dance number also required the same level of detail, like both, you know, in terms of like the movement of the actors and the choreography and the skill that went into that, but then also like all the production design that has to support it. You know, it's impressive, but it just doesn't, that's not enough for a movie for me. I really want to be in the story. And the second that I'm out of it, I get frustrated, you know, and that's just one of my hangups, I guess. 
Well, I want to talk a little bit more about dance because with the films that we've selected, they're not as dancey musicals up until much later in this series. Was there anything in particular you noticed? Because there was something that I noticed immediately that separates this film from sort of more modern movie musicals. And I'm just curious if it, if it was abundantly clear to you as well. Yeah, I mean, I think you can tell that it is directed by someone who dances. Okay, yeah, interesting. It's actually, it reminds me of like kung fu movies. Right. right? In the sense that it's like the person behind the camera or, you know, person in front of the camera who's talking to the guy behind the camera really wants the viewer to know that the people on screen are actually doing this. Yeah. You almost always see their whole bodies. Yep. Right? There's a lot um, of wides. Yeah. And you generally see the action play out front to back in like a whole section of the song. Yeah. And, very, very few cuts. Right. And I feel like that's a lot of what I noticed is just that the cinematography and the editing is very straightforward yes. in terms of how it's presented. It's kind of meant to be seamless, like you don't notice it, right? Yeah. And that's not to say that it plays out like a stage show all the time. No, and that's what I think is so remarkable is that right. for how much of the dance sequences are told through just wides and very few cuts, mm -hmm. it never feels like it lacks energy. Right. And I think if you look at more modern stuff, you know, obviously the, the editing style is much more influenced by what has been come to be referred as like MTV style editing, like how music right. videos, you know, it's cut, 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 like a five minute sequence might have like 45 cuts or whatever. This does not do that, but it doesn't feel slow or like I want it to cut. Like it, it's so well directed and so well shot and edited. And to the point where at like about halfway through the movie, I was like, I'm curious. I want to figure this out. So I started paying attention to it. And so when it got to the titular on the town song, which is where they're right. on the rooftop, I was like, I'm going to count how many cuts there are in this five-ish minute sequence. How many do you think there were? Oh, man. Um, so it's five minutes. I think it's five uh, minutes. I, it couldn't be sure. I, but yeah, like it's, right. it's the length of a song, you know? Wow. That's, I mean, it's really hard to estimate. Maybe like 10, let's say. So like, you know, like two a, two a minute. It is exactly 10 cuts. And it's, really? Yes, exactly. <laughs> I can't like, I actually got that right. It right on the head. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, that's in, like, it was incredible it's, to That's me not a lot. That's not that's a lot. That's really not a lot. It's, yeah. and, and it's, you know, it's every single cut is almost motivated by we need to move to a different location or a different part of the stage, as it were. It starts off because it's following the girls and then it cuts to show the guys who have been over here. I just think that's fascinating. I, and again, I, as an editor, I'm just sort of yeah. inclined to pay attention to this sort of stuff. With editing, I'm always impressed when editors are able to kind of do more with less. Absolutely. Where it's like, it's not fancy, but there's a lot of nuance in it, you know? Well, and that's sort of the joke is that people refer to the best editing Oscar. People think that best editing is most editing. And right. <laughs> there's an argument to be made that like great editors know that actually less is more and it's not just about how many yeah. times you cut the shot and there's that famous bohemian rhapsody sequence that like everybody on the internet was dragging because it's literally a conversation between like three people and it has something like 40 cuts in it like it's it's nuts and when you right. compare something like that to what is on display in this film i found that one of the most sort of arresting things about the film yeah there's a lot of restraint for sure i think they get away with it from a filmmaking standpoint, right? Because like 
there are movie musicals where it does just feel like a stage show that they shot, <laughs> right? And this doesn't feel like that. And I think there's a couple reasons. Rather than taking advantage of cinematography and editing as the sort of key filmmaking aspects, they take advantage of the fact that, like, you can change locations really radically. You yeah. can have bigger set pieces than what you can have on stage and, like, crazy things can happen. Like, at the end of Prehistoric Man, the entire dinosaur falls apart, right? Yeah. Which apparently, like, they could only do that, like, once. It took a long time to set it back <laughs> up again, so they had to right. get it right. But it's like, you know, there's that sort of stuff. And then the intercutting of being on location, right? Either literally or just, like, you know, now they're in a car and you have a screen of, like, New York behind you. Just those feelings of, like, being out in the world definitely adds a lot. It's not all interior, right? Yeah. I think that's I think that's actually a big difference is that like often things to have the control are shot interior. But there's tons of exterior locations. Yeah. Which I think really helps mix it up and make it feel cinematic and not just like a stage musical. Well, it's funny because I remember when Les Mis, the movie adaptation came out, like the thing the director said is like, oh, the one thing that separates theater from film is that film has the close up. And that's right. what makes the difference. And to me, I, 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 that's certainly true. But I think really the difference between theater and film is that film has edited yeah. and it is the director's medium and the director has full control over what you're seeing and when you're seeing it. And that's what separates a great movie musical from a bad movie musical is not just like it's, again, taking advantage of the medium to do things that you could never do on stage. And I do think that this film, again, having not seen the stage production, but I do think this film is trying to do that, to try and take advantage of the cinematic medium to do things that would be impossible to do on stage. And I think that's what gives it that feeling of not just being like a film to stage production, as it were. Yeah, totally, totally. A lot of people have sort of credited this as like the first on location musical. But, you know, I think it's like any kind of claim like that where it's always fuzzier than yeah. people make it out to be. And so like there, there were movies before this that did have on location photography a little bit. But I think really the reason people remember this one as the big one is that it does so much of it and it does actual numbers like on yeah. location in a way that like I don't think anything else quite had at the time. Well, and to the original premise, it feels much more integrated. You know, at the risk of using the cliche of like New York is the fifth character, like New York <laughs> kind of does become a character, at least for that opening number, the New York, New York number. That number would not work if it was just a bunch of sound stages. Like it has to yeah. be shot in the city with that energy. For totally. that for that number to work. Yeah, totally. 100%. Because it's all about sort of like going to New York and like the experience of it and all of that. It did remind me a lot of the Simpsons episode, <laughs> uh, the city of New York versus Homer Simpson. One, um, of, which one is, of the best episodes of the yeah. show. And one that was withheld from us for so long after 9-11 because it does feature the Twin Towers so prominently. But yeah, it's one of my favorite episodes, like front to back. It's so, mm -hmm. so, so good. And has a lot of sequences that feel very similar to this movie. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite ones is before they actually get to New York, Homer tells them about the last time he went to New York. And it's this <laughs> montage. And it's like now having lived there, I hadn't watched the episode in a while. And rewatching it, I was like, oh, I actually know where he's supposed to be. Right. Right. Yeah. He's like walking from Port Authority bus terminal to Penn Station. Right. And which is not a very long way to go. But even at the time when the episode aired, and certainly, like, when he would have gone there before, it was a pretty seedy area. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's got, like, uh, The Entertainer, the song The Entertainer yeah. playing in the background. 
that sequence is hilarious. Yeah, one of my favorite pieces of animation in the history of the show is when Homer is being chased by the pimp, and it's and the pimp <laughs> yes. is sort of like leaping to chase, it, and I just it right. I I adore that image. There's a shot right after that as he's being chased, where he's climbing up a ladder very quickly, and it's a <laughs> yeah. close up of him, and then it zooms out, and the ladder is falling down a sewer like a yeah. manhole. Yeah. Oh, it's it's so good. That. It's, that I could watch that again and again. Every time I rewatch it, I forget that that's what's happening. And yeah. then the pullback is so perfect. Well, um, and then, of course, that episode also features one of the best Simpsons musical moments where they right. go to see... Kickin' It, a musical journey through the Betty Ford Center. Which is another one of those examples of, like, it's a pitch-perfect parody of a Broadway-style musical number without being a reference or a parody of a specific Broadway musical number. I'm checking in. He's checking in. I'm checking in. Checking, checking in. Right, but it's so good. It's so catchy. And I also was on that CD. And like, I, I, it gets stuck in my head. And I sing all of the lyrics to it whenever it, whenever I watch that episode because it's you can't not. It's so good. Yeah, totally, totally. Did that one win an award? I feel like it did. Probably. It's so good. I'm checking in, he's checking in, I'm checking in, checking, checking in. The song won an Annie Award for Outstanding oh, okay. Individual Achievement for Music and Animated Television Production. It also won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Original Music and Lyrics. There you uh, go. So there you go. And not only that, like my wife, who again, I alluded to, like she's a dance teacher, but also was a musical theater performer for many years. She's not a huge Simpson fan, but like even she knows that number and has referenced it on multiple occasions. So it like it... It sort of crosses both barriers, as it were. Yeah, totally. It has the same energy as this movie, I feel like, even though Homer's having a terrible time. But, you know, the rest of the family is really seeing the sights. Yeah, Just exactly. Just like uh, Gaby and the, and the gang. So let's maybe talk about the ending a little bit, because this is where things sort of have maybe shifted the most from the original Broadway production, as right. we sort of alluded to earlier. Like, again, the Broadway show is coming out during the war. This is coming out post-war. The show tackles very much the insecurities and the emotions that wartime people are feeling, whereas the film very like keeps that at arm's totally. length. Um, well, so I feel like we have to kind of like set up the plot a little bit more before we get there, which is just that. So basically, Gaby, who's played by Gene Kelly, right? He falls in love with Miss Turnstiles, who's uh, Vera Ellen. And essentially, most of the movie, the driving force is they're trying to find her, Right. They're trying to track her down so that Gaby can get with her. Right. And that kind of works for me. That's the part of the movie that really works. But then, like, maybe even, like, halfway through the movie, or maybe it's two-thirds or something like that, they find her, <laughs> and they all get together, and then they just go partying for, like, yeah. the rest of the movie, and, like, a bunch of zany shit happens. Yeah, and right? there's one of my favorite lines in the movie that genuinely made me laugh out loud is, like, I can't remember the exact line, but it's something to the effect of, like, what? New York's a pretty big place. We're never going to find her. And then it immediately cuts to her. And it's just one of those great, like, right. punchlines. But yeah, they do find her relatively quickly. But then she disappears and leaves him on his own. And he can't, he can't right. fathom Which why. Which is the Cinderella thing, right? That's exactly. the sort of, like, very similar sort of vibe. But then they, there's, like, a, let's see. There's a car chase where they're being chased <laughs> by the cops because they've caused all this havoc in New York. They, like, destroy a dinosaur at the museum. They steal a cab. And all this sort of stuff. 
and they go to Coney Island to find her. And then there's some cross-dressing that happens. And, you know, it's kind of like just a bunch of zany nonsense. Yeah. And I, I have no idea how that last act compares to the stage musical, too. But this is the part where I'm, like, kind of zoning out. And yeah, the, me, it's the same here. And the musical numbers are not good. The The title song, On the Town, totally forgettable. <laughs> totally forgettable. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's kind of where we're at when the ending is sort of happening. Finally, the cops catch up with them at Coney Island, right? Yeah. And they've pinned them down and the men are being taken away. Is that what's happening? Yeah, yeah, and the, I think and so. the ladies are sort of like, you know, defending them and saying, no, you know, and th- there's a sort of a pretty good, actually, like satirical speech that's given at the end. I think it's it's the cabbie character, right? Who's I think so, yeah. Speech. And she's sort of saying, like, that part's actually pretty funny. What? You ought to feel proud that three sailors from the United States Navy got off a ship for one day and what did they do? Were they thirsty for hard liquor? They were thirsty for culture. Were they running after girls? No. They came running to the museum to see your dinosaur. For months out at sea, they were dreaming about your dinosaur. Is it any wonder that seeing it face to face, overcome by emotion, that one of them fell against it and broke it a little? Why, I'll bet if that dinosaur could speak, he'd say what any public-spirited citizen would. For the Navy, any time. But then, you know, they get away with it. And in the film, they just go back to the Navy yards and say goodbye to the ladies and go back on the boat. And then another group of sailors get off and start singing the opening number again. Right. right? Which to me is almost like, it's kind of nihilistic. It's kind of like, well, we had a great time, but none of it mattered. And the cycle's going to start all over again. Yeah, like, exactly. That's kind of what it felt like to me was the message. It was like, we had a great time, but who cares? And it's kind of a bummer, you know? Yes. But, like, I gather that the vibe of the musical, the original stage show, is a little bit different. Yeah, so, I mean, I, basically, the show ends with this number that they cut, as we alluded to earlier, like, they cut a bunch of stuff. But it basically ends with this song called Some Other Time. And maybe I'll just play a little clip of the chorus of it. Yeah. Just when the fun is So yeah, the line, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting, but let's be glad for what we've had and what's to come. There's so much more embracing still to be done, but time is racing. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time. So it's a much more, again, like addressing this idea of like, you know, your friends and loved ones are maybe heading off to war. And there's that hope of like, yes, we'll come back and everything will be okay. But also recognizing that there's a very good chance that like, maybe we won't. Yeah, it's a much more, you know. Melancholy. Yeah, low key kind of, not depressing, but like certainly not a show-stopping finale number. The show is this very like bubbly, effervescent show, right? And I think the stage show was that too. Mm-hmm. But like the nice thing about this ending is that it just it calls attention to the framing of what this is. It's sure leave, yeah. right? And now you're going back and you're leaving and you met these people you really like had a great time with and maybe even love 
and now you have to leave. It's kind of giving you a framework for how to interpret that event in your life, which is be thankful for the time you had and hope that you'll get more of that time yeah. soon. And like, that's a much more compelling message yeah, to, leave, to leave people with than like what happens in the movie, which is just kind of a bunch of silliness. And although what I thought was interesting was the film ends by sort of like repeating the shot and song because there's the dock worker that starts to yeah. say. And so it's almost like implied it's like a cyclical thing, but it's not a cyclical. Right. So it's like it's just an interesting. Well, that's I don't what I really... mean. Is, but like the cyclical thing feels so nihilistic. Right. Where it's just like these characters are interchangeable. The story is the same story for everyone. That's what I come away from that with, right? Is it's just like, here are three more sailors that could have been these sailors. Right, yeah. Right? It makes all the the, the story and the characters very disposable yeah. in a way that kind of <laughs> pisses me off. Whereas the original it does sound like it, it's making it really meaningful for this set of characters, for these people. So, yeah, I mean... I like the first half of this movie and the second half of this movie kind of like bums me out and it just doesn't feel like it holds together as well. No, nothing stands out in my mind as much. It's kind of mushy. Well, to that end, let's sort of wrap things up in our, and talk about our verdicts about how we felt about the movie. Apparently in the 70s, like Kelly said in an interview that this was his favorite of his films, you know, which is right. amazing that it sort of supersedes Singing in the Rain. Um, yeah, I, well, think, I think what I've heard him say about that is just that like, all of the people involved were at the height of their powers. Right. He felt like his dancing and Vera Allen's dancing and all of them. Right. And the singing and everything. Everyone was like just at their peak when this movie was made. So like, you know, maybe the other ones are more memorable in other ways. But like for him, the the artistry of singing and dancing is like really on display. Yeah. I mean, you sort of alluded to it that, you know, this is not really your cup of tea and you enjoy parts of it, but it's not maybe... A favorite? Is that a fair summary of your feelings here? Yeah, yeah. It has a few uh, musical numbers that I really enjoy, and the dancing's amazing. As we started with, it, with you know, talking about the movie, like I just love seeing New York, right? Yeah, in, for sure. In this context, I think that's that's very very cool. And also, like, I guess we didn't talk about this that much, but like the female characters are actually great, legitimately great in this. Yeah, they, you're right. Yeah. They are like real, fully developed people that have agency and are smart and funny and interesting. Yeah. Not, and not just by 1949 standards, like even right, by, by today's like modern standards. standards. Yeah. Like yeah. they're, they're well drawn. Yeah. They are really compelling characters. So like, that's all great. But then, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's just not a very memorable musical, particularly because it doesn't stick the landing. Yeah. It just, it's not something that I think I'm going to think about that much. Like after this, I mean, what about you? What do you? How do you feel? I mean, I went into it kind of not dreading it, not like I'm dreading some other <laughs> upcoming titles, uh, but this would not be my first choice or my, sure. like I said, it's not my cup of tea, my kind of musical that I normally go in for. So I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. I was surprised at how much I actually laughed out loud. Like there were yeah. a number of genuinely like laugh out loud, funny jokes. Totally. Um, and then obviously, you know, I certainly can appreciate the dancing and the, artistry on display i feel like i'm glad i finally have seen it and and kind of have that reference point but it's not anything that i feel the need to like rush back to it's very safe they've scrubbed it of anything right up to the word hell of a like it's something that you could watch with you know your five-year-old and and you'd be yeah, fine no smut and communism here yeah no exactly but I, I guess maybe that's also part of what i don't like about it i like right. my my musicals with a little bit of edge and 
with something to say. And I think at the end of the day, this is, you know, although there's more plot than maybe some of the stuff that preceded it, it's still very much kind of a, here's a very thinly veiled plot with some songs stitching it together. And there's not really any message at the end of the day. So it doesn't really do much for me, but I I did enjoy it. And, it, and it's not, it's I think it's only like 91 minutes or something. Like it's not a long yeah. film. So that's a real selling to, point. Yeah, we, you know, I poured myself a martini and sat down and had some fun. But I wasn't like, oh my God, I can't wait for this to be over. Um, right. So I appreciate, and nothing else, I appreciate that. So would you would you recommend this? Do the strengths outweigh the weaknesses? I think it's one of those things of like for a completionist or for like true diehard musical theater fans, like this is definitely one you have to see. And again, it has those moments. Um you know, if you're a Frank Sinatra fan or a Gene Kelly completist, like, yeah, obviously. Um, mm. But I don't I, if you're the kind of person who doesn't really go in for musicals on the whole because you don't love when people just like randomly break out into song, like you won't make it through this thing. It's kind of everything people who hate musicals hate about musicals. It's not going to convert anyone, I don't think. Which is which is, I guess, exactly why it's perfect for that parody that we that we looked at is that yeah. it is exactly encapsulates a very particular kind of Broadway musical of a particular era. Exactly. Um, which is like singing and dancing, you know? All singing, and, all dancing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, yeah, I probably would not recommend this for anyone who's anything like me. I think, again, like, you do well to just, like, if you're interested in music and dancing, like, just watch some of these numbers on YouTube. Yeah, you yeah know? exactly. Because they stand on their own as very interesting, cool, impressive feats. But, like, you don't really need to watch it as a movie. No. You know, it, the movie itself isn't isn't really much of a movie. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, exactly. So that would be that would be, I guess, my take on it. For sure. Do you have any, like, recommendations if, if people like this? What would you recommend people check out next? I mean, I think if you haven't seen Singing in the Rain, it's kind of considered to be, like, the de facto movie musical. It's one, although we're not covering it. But, yeah, it's something that... If you enjoyed this, absolutely check it out. Even if you didn't enjoy this, I think check it out because I think that movie has sort of something for everyone. Well, obviously, something a little more modern would be La La Land, which we sort of we have referenced. Like that is a it's it's paying more tribute to Singing in the Rain than this. But again, if you like this but want something a little more modern feeling, La La Land would be my choice. I, I love that movie, and it and it's also like another movie about a city. Yeah, in a lot of ways. exactly. And then again, if you want to do a deep cut, Young Girls of Rushmore is a really interesting, like it's it's uh, Jacques Demy and uh, a Michel Legrand score. And as I said, a sort of older Gene Kelly shows up in it, but like just beautiful colors and it like it's pastel. It's just, yeah, it's a gorgeous little movie, um, it, but it's also in French. So it's a oh, lot okay. more to add because it's a musical in French. So you've got subtitles and like, so if you don't like musicals and you don't like subtitles, do not watch that one. How sure. about you? Is there something, you know, along these lines that you could recommend? So, again, if you, uh, you know, were super impressed by Vera Allen, definitely go watch White Christmas because there's more of that. It's also a pretty fun movie. Also another kind of like weird, it's weirdly about the military. Right. <laughs> My mother-in-law cries every time she watches it, and particularly at the military parts, which is surprising given, <laughs> you know, all of our politics, I guess. But yeah. that, it just really gets her. There's a lot of like, very sweet, like, men's love for each other in the right. movie, which is kind of unexpected. So that's one. But, like, more in the spirit of this, I would say In the Heights, actually. Mm. 
reminds me of this a lot in terms of the fact that it's also about New York and also a lot of it is shot on location. Yeah. In ways that actually blow this completely out of the water. Oh, it, um, it, yeah, absolutely. An infinitely but, better yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like if you took this and mashed it up with Do the Right Thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 really. It's, it's got more of that aesthetic of like, I, I kind of hate when people say stuff like this, but like the real New York. Yeah. Like, what is it like to live in New York? And what is it like to be in the, the neighborhoods of New York? But um, specifically what makes that one interesting, too, is that it's like of an era of New York as well. Like, again, yes. as we sort of alluded to, like that's capturing a very specific, more modern, obviously, but like a very specific time in this sort totally. of very specific place. Totally. And it has some like amazing, big musical numbers. It was the first movie I saw in theaters since the pandemic. Right. And it was a perfect movie to see in theaters because it, it is so spectacular. Like, yeah, there's so much spectacle. Yeah. And we were like in a theater with no one else. Basically, we were in Manhattan and the only other group there was clearly like a backup dancer and some of her oh, friends. Cool. That's and so, so cool. they were they were like cheering when she's yeah, on yeah, yeah. and and were like really into it. And so oh, that's awesome. It was like a perfect experience to like really feel why do we actually go and see this in a cinema? So I'll always have a soft spot for that uh, movie. Not a perfect movie, but really fun and a great way to see New York on screen. And then the other one, of course, is West Side Story. I haven't seen the new one, but the 1961 West Side Story is another one of those ones that captures New York at a very particular era. If you're interested in the behind the scenes stories or this, really recommend looking it up. It was basically shot in an area of Manhattan that had been torn down to build the Lincoln Center, Mm. which is a famous art center in New York. And so they shot on location in that area to sort of replicate the neighborhood that it was supposed to take place in, which was an area affected by urban renewal and all of that sort of stuff. So I I love that movie. And it's a very cool movie in terms of, again, thinking about New York on screen. Well, that Uh, takes us to the end of this episode. And coming up in our next episode is a very, very special episode because we are going to be talking about My Fair Lady, but not just talking about My Fair Lady. We're going to have a very special guest which is uh, Simpsons writer and producer Michael Price is going to be joining us. He wrote an episode that is a back-to-back parody of My Fair Lady, but also the show has been referenced multiple times on The Simpsons, so we're really excited to sort of dig into the film with him. So be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so that you do not miss out on that. So uh, thank you again for joining us for another episode of the Springfield Googleplex, the movie podcast for Simpsons fans. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review and share this episode with the Simpsons fans and film buffs in your life. And as always, because we, even though this is, it's been a few months, we still haven't come up with anything better. Nate? See you around the Plex. See you around the Plex, buddy. It's a hell of a town.